Hello and welcome to another Milser HQ podcast. I'm Tom, and as always, I'm joined by my man Kelly. What's up? How's it going, y'all? So I'm doing good, and uh, we received a lot of positive feedback, believe it or not, on the podcast so far, which is awesome. So thanks to everyone who listened and to listen to our long shows. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, it takes takes some dedication to sit down and listen to an hour and a half podcast, but. It helps you get through your workday. You're welcome. And besides feedback, though, we've received tons of Millsurf-related questions, some in our emails and comments and our social media accounts and stuff, and some in person at gun shows. And my friends and family, when I told them about a podcast, they asked me a million things. So we thought it would be a good idea to share some of these questions and the answers, of course, with all of you guys. We also thought it'd be a good idea to open it up to a few more of our uh, Millsurf knowledgeable pals to come here ask and uh, answer some of these questions. So we, we asked a bunch. We have a pattern collector. We have guys who collect a million different things. We have guys who collect old shit. So we have everything covered from the Civil War through the end of World War II. I think we're pretty good, right? Oh, yeah. These, these guys got a, a bunch of knowledge. And so joining us today, we have Anirondack, Frantic, JM Hammer, and Millsurf Duo. And I guess I'll just ask each of y'all real quick, like what your area of interest is, or like what you focus on for your collections. So go ahead, Anirondack. Uh, I collect mostly like stuff from like the golden age, I guess you'd call it, it's from 1800s into the 40s. Like uh, I'm into mainly the Austro-Hungarian and German, but pr- pretty much all European stuff. So okay, that's a pretty good spread. That's a good name for it, the Golden Age. Golden yeah. Age, I like that. All right, go ahead, Frantic. Uh, I collect Italian veterinary rifles. Oh, you're one of those weird ones that has a bunch of them, aren't you? <laughs> Too many of them. All right, next up we have J.M. Hammer. Uh, yeah, my collection's really all over the place. Uh, here in the last year, I've kind of really gotten into, like, pre-1900s uh, American military stuff. But really, like I said, it's just a little bit of everything. Okay. It's a good one to get into. There's a lot of neat stuff that happened then for America. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of technology changed, for sure. All righty. Last but not least, we have Milserp Duo. Hello. Uh, Yeah, my uh, collection basically entails mainly U.S. So between my father and I, who's also part of my Milserp Duo is how our name is, we collect U.S. We have everything from basically modern-day all the way back to the Civil War. Um, myself, I do more of the European than my father does, but yeah, I I have everything back to the Civil War, which includes the 1863 Springfields. I got a lot of your uh, infield martinis, your Snyders, all the way up to your, your standard 03s that you would see today on the surplus market, which are becoming more common right now. And reloading for all those too. Absolutely, right. yeah. That's that's where a lot of guys have started to ask me the questions on the Millsurp world side. Is I've been reloading since I was a little kid. So, yeah, that's awesome. All right, so that's the intros. That's everyone. So first, I'd like to say I've included the a lot of questions of all skill levels. So I put a lot of simple ones in. Some of like the who the hell would know what this is one. So there's something for everyone, and I organize them by country. Focus mainly on the primary countries and the troublemakers of the two world wars, but we'll expand a little later to some other ones. So if you know the answers, these guys just yell it out. We'll share. There's some questions here that I, I know some of you are going to know more than others. So whatever you know, we'll say. 
All right, everyone ready? We're gonna go around the globe, mostly. Yeah, go for it. All right. All right, so the first gun we covered in our podcast series was the Type 99, and I thought we'd start with Japan. So the first one we got here is, I was looking at an Arasaka Type 99 for sale and was wondering, what is that little box that looks like a button on the stock underneath near the top band? So this fella is wondering what that little tiny button is, and I was in this boat when I got my Arasaka. I know that one is just because I have one. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way. And yeah, you can say it. You can say what it is. We're just telling this guy. So that little button is the retainer for the cleaning rod. You push that, and then you can pull out your cleaning rod. And isn't there a gun that the band release is also the cleaning rod release? There's one, because it's this button is only the cleaning rod retainer, which is weird. Yeah, there's some that use it as like a two two-part thing. Oh, actually, that's a Type 38, isn't it? Yeah. That's right. I took one apart uh, just last week and <laughs> threw it on the threw it on the channel. That's how you take out the cleaning rod and the front barrel band. I think once we'll get over that when we get over into other countries. But I think the Model ninety one Mauser pattern is also based that way, where the the front band right is that's what with I'm the spring. Now. Yep. Um, they and the cleaning rod uh, retainer thing actually disappeared not too long into the Japanese Type ninety nine transitions. And I have one that it has a box there, but it's not a button. It's just a box to hold the, the, the hole, you know? Not wood, metal. It's just not a button. And then later on, it just got rid of it completely with the new front band. So, all right. Next question here. Why do some Arasakas have a, like, C-shaped hook on the back of the bolt and others have a decorative round piece? Was this something they changed early in production? So that's actually a completely different rifle. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that would be, so if you're looking at the one with the back where it has the hook, that is actually the Type 30 Arasaka in 6.5 Jap. They later on would change the design to the Type 38, which they kept the same 6.5 cartridge, and they got to where it's the, the flowered shape back of the bolt, and they continued that into the Type 99 when they changed to 7.7. Yep, that was one of the many upgrades, I guess, that, that hook safety, as it's called, is... Was either, I guess, it like to get caught on things, or mm-hmm. maybe it was a weak part that broke off. But they completely re- redesigned the bolt when they went to the Type 38 as well. Yep. That's actually a pretty rare rifle. You don't see many Type 30s very often. And then also the new uh, safety piece was supposed to be a gas shield as well, which was made it better. So as much mm-hmm. as the hook is cool, it's not as practical. All right, got a couple more Japan here. The next one I spoke to Conrad here personally, so I'll just tell you what he said. It seems the Japanese had a lot of Type 38s around during World War II. Were there any official Type 38 variants adopted by the Army in 7-7 or a substantial amount converted for troops? So the short answer is no. I talked to Conrad. They used a lot of 38s to test the 7-7 round and to develop it. And all they realized was they needed a different rifle. So they didn't bother. Even when they needed other rifles, they seems that they made those transitions in last ditches before they decided to convert 38s. Yeah, I know those, they have, you can find like those super early like trials guns of 38s actually in 7.7, but they're, you do not see them that often at all. Right, like Danny from Millsup World just recently grabbed one. All right. I saw a Type 99 Arasaka listed in 30-06. Is that a Bubba or a real thing? Didn't China do that? 
Well, the South Koreans being helped by the U.S. This is another one I talked to Conrad about, I believe. And they converted uh, the rifles to thirty six and gave him a boatload of ammo. Oh, yeah. I think the one you're thinking of, Hammer, is the one Danny just actually got, which is an 8mm. Yeah, the Chinese, Chinese did some in 8mm. They had, since they had a ton of different 8mm rifles and ammo. All right, there's one more here on Japan. It's just an interesting one because the guy, this is a very detailed one here, the guy wrote, but he said, my friend and I both have a 33rd series Type 99 made at Toyo Kogio, but mine has a wooden butt plate, no AA provisions, but a normal looking sight and a single screw rear sling. But my buddy's one has a metal butt plate, AA sight adapters, but missing the arms and two screws in the back sling. There's only a 45,000 difference in serials. He's around 52K, I'm around 97. So are these both correct? So wait, I wrote the book down. The Japanese Type 99 Arasaka book by Don Voigt has all this info in there. And you could just go like you just put the series in whatever, and and they're both correct. In the middle of that series, they changed everything. Hmm. That's pretty crazy. So they both have the same series rifle. So that's why when you see them for sale, 33rd series Type 99, I mean, it could be any of them. Yeah, you really got to, I guess, look up the chart at least to see to see what it should or should not have. Right, this book has the things that changed and when they changed, so when they went to the two screws. But even then, you, you're going to see 33rd Series had two different ones. Now what? I don't know. All right, we're moving away from Japan. We're heading to an ally country. But sadly, they don't have the bravest reputation. We're going to France for a few. Uh-oh. <laughs> Yell it out if you know. Does a standard LaBelle bayonet fit on any of the Bertier rifles? Yes. yes. That sounds like a lot of yeses. I, I think it's yes too, right? No, no exceptions. Not the well, carbine. And not, not the, I have a LaBelle bayonet that doesn't fit on my Bertier carbine. So. <laughs> yep, the eighteen. Me too. 90, so that's why I'm confused. Eighteen ninety-two carbines have their own unique bayonet, but the long long Bertiers uses the same bayonet as the LaBelle rifle. But didn't the the Turkish uh, Berthiers have their own different bayonet pattern completely from the French Berthier carbine? Yeah, the the forestry carbines. I don't even know if they had a bayonet. Now that I think about I'm it, I'm pretty sure they did. I think it's just it's just it doesn't look like the cruciform bayonet for like oh, the maybe, same. Maybe they it's had, just like they, the... had, they had no bayonets. Oh, oh. they did. Oh, okay, okay. Forest, because that isn't the next. The next question is. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the next question is I stumbled across a short French Berthier rifle marked TC Orman 1948 and was wondering what the F it is yep, so th- that's, that's tor- it Turkish forestry carbine which those are kind of neat they didn't want people to be able to steal rifles that they had ammo for so they got really weird rifles for their forestry police that wow. only they had ammo for and is it still Millsurp? According, let's steal from Millsurp Worlds last week. Is it still? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Right. Oh, absolutely. I say so. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It. I mean, it was a military service rifle, just cut down. All right. I don't mind the cut. All right, another French one here. Did the Did Labelle design a pistol too? I saw a Labelle revolver in quotes for sale, and think that it would be awesome to have the rifle and pistol. <laughs> Parentheses. Although I don't have either. Huh. So. I was confused. I didn't know. And 
there is what's called a LaBelle revolver. Does anyone yeah, know? Since, it? since I recently yeah. got one, go ahead. Oh, uh, you you know it? You have it? Uh, I recently got one, but the LaBelle revolver is a misnomer. Right, that's what I was. That's what, that's what they said. He had nothing to do with it. Yeah, people just called it that because like, oh, it's French. It must be a LaBelle. In the defense, it shot LaBelle, right? Eight tech, uh, eight millimeter LaBelle. They called that ammo. Well, I guess I think the technical name is eight millimeter ordnance. Oh, okay, eight by twenty-seven, small. Yeah. So yeah, the model model eighteen ninety-two revolver in eight millimeter ordnance LaBelle stuff is. Uh, Called the LaBelle revolver, he didn't really design it. So, yeah, and the the modern ammo made by Fiocchi is called eight millimeter LaBelle revolver. So, you're looking <laughs> for ammo, still got to still got to use the wrong name. <laughs> That's it for the guy who designed it. Okay, in an auction I was watching last night, there is a Moss thirty six rifle with an unusually large front sight. Was this a sniper or a grenade model or something cool like that? So the Moss thirty sixes with the giant sights. What's those official? What's the official name of those? I believe, if I'm not mistaken, 50. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, the thirty six fifty one. Yeah. Oh, thirty six M fifty ones. Right. Yep. And oh yeah, that's also... a grenade launch. So what else is needed? Just grenades with that setup? I believe uh, those blanks and grenades. I think. Yeah, because it had the fluted the the fins in the barrel already. So yep. Yeah, it was like cool. the. Oh, I forgot whether they were like twenty seven millimeter or twenty two millimeter NATO grenades it's like the same grenades you can launch off of like an an fal or a m14 or something like that i think 27 27 sounds right it might not be right but and is it are these worth more or less like than a post-war regular M mos 36 or this not a pre-war i know those goes for premium i haven't um, priced them out but i'd say they're about the same really i've never yeah, priced them out Mostly about the same, maybe a slight Weird. edge to the not grenade ones, so just the, the non fifty ones, because people still associate those with World War Two. Yeah, but the grenade launching variants, the rare one too. Well, the but answer people... is other part of his question. I don't think France ever had a sniper program during World War Two hmm. that I'm aware of. Yeah, you know, I come to think of it, is it, I don't remember a sniper, Master, yeah. a sniper anything. There was a sniper LaBelle that. I mean, it existed, but that's about as far as it got. Yeah, I mean, if you go, like, like post-World War II, I mean, they started getting into sniper rifles, but World War II and immediately after, I, I don't think they had anything that was, like, a standard sniper rifle. Yeah. I know later on in the 70s or 80s, they had the FRF-1 and FRF-2, which is based upon the Moss 36, mm-hmm. like, chassis, but it's a completely different rifle. Yeah. 70s. <laughs> All right, we're bidding adieu to France, and we're heading to the U.S. of A. And the second Millsup Army covered was the uh, Model 1917, so we received a lot on that, most on that. So let's start there with some 1917s. Were there any new produced 1917s made after World War One? Got this a lot of times. Very shortly into 1919, they voted... 1903 or 1917? What are we doing? We know what won. Yeah, I think probably didn't. I think they stopped in like, what, like March of 1919 or something like that? And I looked, double-checked. I didn't see if it was they were just pieced together from what was already made or they were. I think that's what it was. It was just part. Yeah, pretty much, I think. 
I don't know. I don't know the official time when they killed the contract. But they told them to stop making new ones. Definitely after 1919. There's no newly produced 1917s, unfortunately. Um, how would one know if their 1917 bayonet was the correct one for their rifle? Were they marked or serialized in any way to the guns or to the scabbards? And this is another sad one. Because I found no way to know exactly. Not that I'm aware of. I, <laughs> a couple I have, I don't see any markings. Or they have the manufacturer markings, but no serial markings or anything. And nothing to the scabbards. Yeah, I found a, a forum where a guy was trying to track like the manufacturers. Maybe they got shipped only to certain... No, he dead end. <laughs> Figure it out. Mine has a unit mark on it, but that's, I think, from Lynn Lease in World War Two. And it has, like, green paint on both the bayonet and the scabbard. I don't know if that means anything. So maybe you could know where it was the second time around. Yeah, I think from what I've seen, it was Australia. All right. Are there any preferred or special bullet grain or diameter of... Bu of Wait, bullet grain or diameter or powder specifications when reloading for the 1917? Like, what I've been reading about reloading for the M1 Garand. No. Like, not really. Send it. Yeah, the send. 1917 uh, has a pretty uh, strong action. So yeah, that's I would agree with that on that. You can shoot hot, hot, hot loads, but when you're shooting a gun that old, why? Yeah. Um, probably stick with the 175 grain. That's a nice yeah. tried and true. All right, we're off the 17. We're onto some M1s here. The M1 Garand. I'm gonna say Garand. I know it's Garand. Please. I don't want. Wait, wait, let's just do, let's do that right now. You guys are all, when you just talk about it, is it the Garand or the Garand? What do you guys say? Garand. Uh oh, he's a Garand. Garand. Uh oh, I go I'm back Garand as well. It, I mean, his name was Garand. That's how we pronounce his name. Right, but just the gun, not the guy. Yeah, but I mean, if you're gonna name the gun after the guy, it should be Garand. All right, so we're almost split down the middle here. Gonna say that. All right. Is my GAW marked M1 Garand one of the rare stock stamps? And I, uh, this was an easy checkup here. Guys should just Google because it's actually the most common. <laughs> so, yeah. That's the George Woody one. I, he replaced my favorite, is the Colonel er Earl McFarlane. He has the EM with the little C and the F. That's a good stamp. All right, there's, there's one here. Eight is such a silly amount to have for a magazine size. Why didn't the U.S. go with 10 or more? So that comes back to what Milsub Duo said before. I feel like eight is already kind of pushing it for an unblock clip. Well, it was... they had 10 in 276. Right, because there was only so much room between the bottom of the, the magazine and I guess. There's no, there's no way they were happy about that. Where they put BAR mags on them, though? I'm, I'm pretty sure I've read that there's a... Or trial rifles where they were trying to put BAR mags on them. So, I mean, that's 20 rounds. Yeah, they, they did do that. Yeah, I saw a yeah. picture of that. But yeah, they, yeah, I've got a book that talks about it. It was supposed to be 10, but then the U.S. is like, no, we want to simplify our ammo usage. Yeah. Well, I think it's multiple. Yeah, you have that. You also have, you don't want to completely redesign the rifle because if you wanted to get more, 
yeah. you would have to turn it completely redo the bottom metal <clears throat> where you would have had to have turned into towards like the 1917 where it's got the hump bottom so you would have completely redesigned the bottom metal they kind of wanted to save ammo we're still kind of in that mindset oh we kind of have to limit what we give our soldiers ammo wise so i can see why the bar magazine didn't work out but they kind of had to find the middle ground point the with the eight rounds that they were going to end up going with. It would have been cool though. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I think if I'm not mistaken, there's one of those trial rifles. Is that display at the Springfield Armory Museum there in Massachusetts? If I'm not mistaken. Wow. Okay. Here's one here. This is for our pal lock bars. Why do people care about lock bars on the M1s? Is it just a rarity thing? No, technically that's World War II, correct? Technically. What? Uh, no. Yeah. But why do they care? Oh, because it's the it's the wartime years? Yeah. If they want to have they want to have a wartime looking gun, they usually want to have the lock bar sights. That's that's what I've always anticipated or put lock yeah. bars towards is both like period that. correct basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I've, I've even seen guys take, yeah, Korean grands and put lock bar sights on it just to say, "Oh yeah, this is a World War 2 look cut model grand i'm like uh no it's not i can look at your serial number and tell you it's not so but yeah there's people that do it just to look like it's from world war ii no the, f- <laughs> the, the scammers are out there yeah absolutely <laughs> especially if you're gonna sell it on gunbroker <laughs> yep. yeah right all right now the m1 carbines did springfield armory make any receivers parts barrels or anything related to the m1 carbine and they were around. They were busy. Not that I'm aware the of. The M1 Garands. And I could find zero help besides I saw that some point they gave some machinery things or something to the That's, carbine yeah. area. <laughs> but That's what I could see is, yeah, they would have gave some tooling, but they were just trying to knock out Garands as much as they could. And on the M1, we hear so much about Garand. We hear about Garand nonstop, but who designed the M1 carbines? And this that this guy is the guy who was talking about this. I think Danny was. He's a convicted bootlegger. So I was yeah, Cadillac Williams. Carbine Williams. Carbine Cadillac Williams. Yeah, he worked for Winchester, didn't he? He was a convicted felon in prison and designed actually the uh, gas and recall system. But also, Ed Browning, Mm -hmm. John Browning's brother, started it and died and. He took over, so it's a weird connection with this whole world. So Ed Browning was working at Winchester, started it, he died. Marshall came out of jail, said, give me that. And they knew how good he was. They, there's a whole good story on it. They rushed it and still got selected. Kind of a cool fact for everybody listening. The carbine, and it's kind of not really Millsurf related, the carbine is actually the same recoil system as your Mini 14 of today. Whoa. Well, yeah, everyone thinks it's Mini 14 for the M14, but they're really not the same system. Yep. Yeah, the M- M14 is a completely different system from the Grand, from the Carbine. They're all they're all pretty much different. Besides the Carbine and the Mini 14 are the same. All right, here is a famous 1903 Springfield question. I had to put it in here, but what are the 1903s recommended to avoid because they will blow up? <laughs> And I'll say right off the bat, I don't think they're gonna blow up. No, none of them. Oh, I would agree but, with you one hundred percent. I don't. I don't believe that. But either. it's on CMP's website. They have these 
these numbers are on the website. What to avoid? Just saying. So it's like sub eight hundred thousand. Right. Yeah. Eight hundred thousand for Springfield. Eight hundred and twenty-eight for Springfield and two eighty-five for Rock Island. Right. Two eighty-five. Five oh seven. If you get five oh eight, you're good. Five oh seven. Don't shoot it. And I think all of us would agree. We we probably know why those guns blew up in combat. Yeah. And after seeing, I read a lot of reports of uh, testing ammunition and how many times the ammo was bad when they were designing the ammo and it wrecked guns. Even had some 1917s blow up, and those things are built like <laughs> Yeah. I think it was a multiple of things. Of course, the ammo testing. Um, I also equate, we'll get World War One trench warfare. You're going to storm a trench. Oh, I occupied a German trench. Oh, there's ammo here. You get a dumb little private that doesn't know what he's doing. Oh, this ammo feeds in my gun. Oh, it chambers. I'm going to try it. Kaboom. <laughs> that is true. I hadn't thought about that. I was thinking like, oh, they took a dive and filled their barrel full of mud. That even possible <laughs> too. It, there's a multiple things it could have been. But it's. I think it's more. It, they're not going to blow up. I have a low serial. It works. And I'll say, on the reloading side, for reloading for them, yeah, we've shot full power loads through our low numbers, but it's not something we shoot all the time through, like, our high numbers. We'll we'll download just to just to have fun with them. I don't see really a big issue. Yeah, I, I recommend anyone with capability to do that, shoot a little lower. <laughs> I think it's like a, a survivor thing. So the guns that are still around <laughs> are fine and were fine. The ones that blew up blew up a long time ago. <laughs> Yeah, makes sense. Same for like the Gavari 88s that they talked about that will will burst their barrels. Well, they had like five do it 120 years ago, so it's probably fine now. Right, there's so many of them. We would hear we we none of us know a guy whose 1903 blew up a low number. You know, we would know somebody. I right. have heard a story. No, out east. but is it a guy from a guy you heard? No, I heard guy. it from a guy. <laughs> I heard it from a guy himself that took the guns apart. Oh, low serials. He said that it the receiver fell apart in his hand. I'm like, I don't believe that. First of all, <laughs> metal just doesn't flake and fall apart. But it was just kind of an interesting story. Well, maybe he dug it out of the lake or something. I have Who heard knows? of like receivers cracking, like when people try to get the barrel off, just because like the the torque is too much. Uh, 1970s are notorious for having like super barrels where they break and twist up trying to take them off. That's right. Maybe that's what I was thinking of. I'd be sad. All right. What is a ramrod M1903 Springfield that I heard about? Now, what are they? Are they not? Are they? That's what just collectors call them, right? They're just 1903s. (laughs) Ramrod bayonet one. Yeah, I guess that's what he's referring to. Is the ramrod bayonet it means it has the ramrod the shitty phillips head screwdriver bayonet did anyone ever put one on and try to use it it was a prototype oh three basically that was a carryover from the trap door years they think oh let's try to do some more weight savings and turn the ramrod cleaning rod space into your bayonet like you would see on the trap doors that that ended up failing super weak area Kind of a Pretty good idea. But you could tell how a the cleaning rod, those how beat up and bent those get, and the bayonet, the, the bayonet, not much thicker. Teddy Roosevelt had something to say about the ramrod bayonet. Mm-hmm. Remember that? 
Yeah, I, I bet it was cursing, but they took it out of history. He's like, it broke short off as soon as hit with even moderate violence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's why when you find no three ramrods, they go for a pretty, pretty penny. I haven't seen one in a while. All right, now this is something I don't really know much about, but I want one. Every time I go trench hot, uh, trench shotgun searching, I hear about fakes. So I was wondering, do you have any tips for identifying a real one? They're all fake. Yeah. 95% <laughs> of them are fake, yes. I, I just know that, that, right now. that band on the – if it has that band holding the uh, barrel to the bottom there, it's not yeah. real. <laughs> I always look for that. Yeah, if it says Narenko, it's most likely it's a fake. <laughs> yeah, and the Narenkos, yeah. <laughs> Takedown. And then, like, the yeah takedowns are fake, yeah. and then, like, if it has checkering, it's fake. If the barrel doesn't line up with the bayonet log, I think, mm-hmm. I think that changed from World War One to World War Two. is another thing to look for. And that's, that's another one that I think you can look up the serial number ranges for, like, the two contracts they had. Yes, that is correct on that. Right, one of the yeah one of the ways is uh, you can look up the serials and there's a couple of markings. The, the there is a flaming bomb there, right on the right mm-hmm. side, and that and you can look at what the bore the the bore is if it's a cylinder or a full. Yep. That'll tell you. Yep, if you get your hands on it. Also, yep. um, the front sight, if you can measure it, it's exactly a half mm-hmm. inch from the end of the barrel, and a lot of times they don't get that right, so. Ooh, that's a good one. All right. It is time now for Evil Germany. I expected more of the Evil Germany questions, but I only got a handful here. Starting with, uh, what year did the Germans first start using the Eagle with swastika marks on their K-98s? And I just checked my book. I see 1938 is when it started. So there are K-98Ks that are earlier I still have the Imperial marks. I think mine does. Yeah, mine's a 1939. It has both. Yeah, Whoa. I was about to say. A lot of times you'll see the 38s and 39s. You'll see both on them still. That's great. Okay, next. What's the deal with these double-dated Gewehr 98s I keep seeing? So I'm assuming they mean 1920s stamps on top. Anyone have one of these? I know we we have a couple of guys in the Discord that have 40 of them, but my buddy has one. I don't have one. I'm trying to buy one off my buddy. Uh, but that is actually after War One, during the treaty. I think I'm for I get all the treaties confused. Uh, but they had it in there that Germany had to basically disband their army down to a certain rifles, certain amount of tanks, so on and so forth. So for the army, they re-stamped them with 1920. To said these were the new property of the new army for the German military. So, all right, this one I looked up here. I'll just say it quick here. I recently picked up a 1912 German Danzig Car 98AZ, or I put here if you say Car 98A, and was told it was rare. But I see Danzig so often. How rare is it? I cannot find solid production numbers. So, I just looked up the production numbers, and the Erfurts are. They have a big lead, 85% were Erfurt. That's crazy. So he has a Danzig. That's the second most, though. They made about 14%, 315,000. So I've been looking for one. That's why I don't want to get an Erfurt. They're just too damn common, 85%. So there's Danzigs, then there's Ambergs, 
There's 37,000 of those, and then Spandau made 12,000. So good luck with that 0.5%. All right. They asked me, if, do I know anything about pistols? I don't. So you guys know. Do you know anything about pistols? I've been looking for a normal German Luger and came across one called a Kriegsmarine Luger that went for an insane amount of money, but it didn't seem that different from a regular Luger. Is it just a serial range thing? How rare are they? What should I expect to pay for a standard Luger? If I want wartime years, will I pay more? Lastly, should I bother looking at RTI ones? Thanks, and keep creaking out the shows, blah, blah, blah. I guess yes to all. Yeah. So, Kriegsmarine, it's by serial, right? That's the only way they know? It's the same exact gun? What, does he mean Kriegsmarine or Kring's model? It says that... Kriegsmarine Luger. I think you're talking about the Kriegoff. I think that's what he's meaning. All right. Yeah. Was it expensive? Oh, a lot of the Krieg- Kriegoffs do go for a lot. I will say that. Yeah, if you're looking for a regular one, skip that. Yeah, All right, so how DWM. much for a standard? Well, it depends on competition, really. Yeah, for like a decent one, start at 1200 minimum. Yeah, I mean, if you want like a like a refinished, reblued one, um, you can sometimes find them around 1000 and then what about wartime years? Depends on matter? what war you want. There's <laughs> both World War One and World War Two. True. War, a lot of World it really War Two ones depends are... on how much you want to pay for it. Honestly. Absolutely. All right. Should he bother looking at those RTI ones? No. No. <laughs> not at all. If you're lazy, yeah, definitely, definitely no. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, good. those things. They've seen like four refinishes, no matching parts, and they're also beat to hell. Yeah, if he hates money, then yes. But I think we'd all agree. If you can spend fifteen hundred dollars right now and find one that's got probably eighty percent original finish, matching magazine, probably let's say a nineteen forty two data gun, we'd probably all spend fifteen hundred dollars on them right now, would we? Yeah, it's yeah. If the yeah, price, it's sure. the price issue for sure. Then yeah, yeah. Because yeah. if they said five hundred bucks. Go, oh, oh, you know, they'd sell out constantly. I mean, they sell out anyway, but that's a different story. <laughs> okay. Why do you Mauser people like to shit on the Gewehr 88 commission rifle? I must have shit on it somewhere. Um, I don't know who's doing that? I love mine. Wow, Tom. I shit on saying. it. You know why? I say it's not a Mauser. So I. <laughs> well, I, that was my only right. complaint. <laughs> well, he had the 89 ready to go, and they went with this crap. You know, but, but he was pissed about that. Yeah, he was yeah. pretty salty. Like when well, they took his idea and he, they let him make the sights on the 71. Yeah, they, they like borrowed some of his ideas and they're like, okay, thanks, we're not going to use your design. <laughs> okay, enough of the crowds over here. So let's go over to the big boot and the Italians. So we covered a Carcano in our last episode. I think that starts first one's a Carcano. We, Kelly and I covered this, I think, on the podcast, but Let's see. How can I tell if my Carcano was cut down from a long rifle or was originally a short one? And I assume they mean the TSs. Doesn't it want to have the rear sight from the long rifle? Yes, yeah. That would that'd be correct, yeah. And the the early TSs had a whole different nose cap and bayonet lug, and they first had the sideways ones and all that. So, But uh, also uh, the fair tourney marks that you see, which have the year nicely in the middle. I like that. It says fair tourney, and then it says like 26 right in the middle. Those are usually the Italian conversion marks. But look for the sights. That's the main thing to look for. 
Okay, my local store has a Carcano long gun on their wall, but it appears to have a flat rear sight like Mausers have and a split down the middle two-piece stock. And I was wondering if any Carcanos came like this and if it's the real deal. Uh, a tie buy? That's that what that sounds up. like. That's right? gotta be a tie yeah. That should be in the Japanese section. Or yes. is it Italian? So is it Italian or Japanese mills? Well, he thought it was Italian. Yeah, right. What is it? So the Italians made it for the Japanese. It's Japanese mill, sir. Yeah, it's Japanese Navy military surplus. Yep. So, yeah, the Type I is just a Carcano, like a standard Carcano action jammed into a cool Type 38 style gun. All right, I got a few here, Frantic. This is all you. This first one here. Is it the Vetterly 1870-8715 or the 1870-8716? I'm pretty sure officially it's the 15, but I know in Italy a lot of people refer to 16 there. But 15 is what's generally accepted as correct. That's that's what I've seen the whole time I seen 15 until I just started seeing. I I have a couple of Italian books that I did full Italian, and it said 16 in there first time I saw it. Yeah, I've I've seen that too. Um and then yeah, you'll see people from Italy refer to it as is that, but um I think in like the the one major the book about the Vetterly, he does note that it is referred to as the 16 and some other references, but right, they're both right. Yeah. Right. I saw photos of what looked like Chinese troops using Italian Vetterly rifles. Was I seeing things? I need to find that photo because I've been looking for photos of Chinese troops with them. Uh, but yes, they did uh, ship, I think it was like 400,000 uh, Vetterlies in 10.4 to China uh, for the warlords. I heard, yeah, I heard it was the, the whole crazy warlord era. They shipped them, they, I think they labeled the boxes of like Japanese toys or something to get them in. <laughs> Interesting. And it worked. All right, is it safe to shoot modern Carcano 6.5 in a Vetterly converted rifle? Got to put this one in here. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, so it's just very, very dependent on, on the condition of the rifle, and ultimately it's just going to wear the wear the gun down a lot faster than doing low-power reloads. Uh, I mean, I've shot PPU through mine uh, a bit. I, I don't do it normally. I reload, but... Um, I've heard of people that have shot hundreds and hundreds of rounds of just modern ammo through theirs. And yeah, maybe if you've got one that's like really in great shape, that's fine, but it's not going to last, you know, not going to last forever doing that. So it's best to just go light on them. Are there any stories of them failing from people fucking around? Oh yeah. I've heard of some folks over at a YouTube channel that blew up two of them. (laughs) So that was with reloads, actually. They were doing their own reloads, not PPU. So how would you say the gas mitigation is on it? Um, there are two gas vents uh, uh-huh. drilled into the receiver. And, I mean, I've had plenty of, um, you know, cracked cases when I – though that's in the 10-4. I mean, but they're still in the same spot. Overall, it's it's seems fine. All right. So – you need a real good gun, basically. And then be yeah. careful. <laughs> yeah. Better off it's, going all, a little it's light. all be careful. All right, mates. We're heading to the land of King Charles. Longtime King Charles. So, 
everything's about Enfields. No one asked me about Long Lees or Martini Henrys or anything fun like that. Sorry. But um, so the, the Brits had a number one, a number four, and a number five Enfield. Was there a number two and a number three or even a number six? So I think the answer is yes, yes, and yes. Another was yeah, they were all six. prototype rifles. Yeah, I the six never was not official. I think that's the ex- wasn't the six the twenty two. Yeah, I forget which no. one was the twenty two. So I have no, I have it here. The number one is uh, oh, in nineteen twenty six is when they started. So a bunch of Enfields were already a couple Enfields were out already, but the number one Mark three. The number two is the twenty two rimfire training rifles. They were converted number ones. The number three they have, it's the P fourteen. Oh, that's right. So the P fourteen became the number three. The number four we know from World War Two and the number five jungle carbine. The number six, the only one I saw was there was a one they were working on, an experimental thingy, but I didn't see it get anywhere. Oh, that's right. The the trials one I was thinking of was like the number one Mark V or something like that. It had the rear sight, like where the number four's rear sight is. So it had the rear sight moved back over the charger yeah. bridge, but it's still a number one, like smelly. Okay, I've heard stories of a lots of, of lots of fake jungle carbines. What's the deal with those, and how can you tell a fake? Look, the easiest way to tell is the lightning cuts on the receiver. Oh yeah, on the receiver, right where the uh, okay. you put turn the bolt, nah, the bolt head up to take the bolt out. You can look right there. Right, right, um, right, but right by the safety is the yep. one that the uh, number four, because most of the fakes are number fours being cut into number fives. So, right by the safety, if it has to be have that relief cut to be a number five, that's what I go by. And the, and the bolt knob. Yeah, the bolt knob is drilled out. Drilled out on the five. On the five. Yes. So it'll be it'll be hollow, whereas the number four will be solid. And then internally, there's a couple of things too, but unless the guy's gonna let you take it apart, <laughs> yeah. Also, on the where the the barrel meets the receiver, there's some other relief lightning cuts, but those can be faked and all sorts of other things. But that's another one that you can kind of look for. Yeah, I don't know why so many companies faked them. I guess they were popular back in the day as brush guns or something like that. Mm-hmm. I have an Enfield number four Mark one rifle that came with a spike bayonet, but saw some Enfields with blade bayonets. Did the number four use a blade bend blade one two, or was I looking at an earlier gun? So did number fours get blade bayonets? I think they got them um, in like late World War Two. Yeah, I believe that's the number four Mark two designed. When they redid it, went from the number four Mark one to the number Two, I believe they remodified it to a blade bayonet. They both yeah, fit, they, but I I think that's it's a number nine blade or some crazy mm-hmm. high number. <laughs> it's, the, it's a number four spike, but it's a number nine. And a lot uh, of them you see on the market are just in immaculate condition because they just never saw any action. But you'd say I'd say more. There's more spikes than blades, right? Because it seems oh, absolutely. That, right? Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, there's one. Is rim jam a real thing with Enfields? I haven't experienced it, and no one I know has. So, is it a myth? No, that is not a myth. Yeah, Yeah, no, it's pretty real. It's pretty real. If you get it bad, if you get it bad, you ain't getting it unstuck fairly quick. (laughs) 
Now, Rim Jam to be bad, like just getting it to where it doesn't feed and you can hit it once and it fix that. But there's cases right where it gets stuck and it gets really jammed in there. I've had it where it's ruined my whole day shooting. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Sorry, so it's a real thing to you. Absolutely. Yep, I've had it a few times. Yeah. Usually not too bad. It depends on the ammo. I know everyone says like, oh, well, you're using the wrong ammo. Well, yeah, the ammo can help or hurt, but... And is it the stacking of the rims in the charger? Do you do that and stack them the proper way? I mean, I make sure to just because... Uh, I don't know if it makes a difference. I guess <laughs> try that out. Maybe that can be a good video. So, yeah, we couldn't talk Edfields without talking rim jams, you know? All right, got a few more questions on uh, one more primary country here, and then we got a couple other countries. So, Russia, the troublemaking Russians. Only a couple here on a Mosin. So, number one here. Why am I having such a hard time finding an M91 bayonet scabbard? Were they destroyed or made from some poor material or something? And not a 9130. I'm assuming he means the 91 because Russia didn't supply a scabbard. They yep. wanted you to walk around with that? Well, the the bayonets weren't really designed to be taken on and off that frequently. But there are scabbards in existence. The Austro-Hungarians, when they captured Mosins, they made scabbards for the bayonets in World War One. Yep. I saw that Finland, Germany, and Austria said, what the hell? Made them. But the bayonet on the... 91 is 76, over 76 inches. Yeah, it, it's a long boy. So there was no scabbard, but you could find one, and it's probably cool to find one made by these other com- these other countries. I think I've, I've seen reproductions of them, too, if you just want one for, the shit, for shits and gigs. Right, so you have something to put it in. Okay, here's another Mosin. The store by me has a scoped Mosin that got rifled that is being sold as a true sniper, in quotes, with a bent bolt. But the rifles dated 1939, and my brother said that was too early. But I thought they started in 38. Who is right? Does anyone know when they started these snipers? They made 330,000. And this mm-hmm. guy, this guy's brother is right, because they were only made between 41 and 43. So, poor guy. Yeah, more than likely it's a century rebuild. That's the easiest way to look. Look if it's a century armor <laughs> mark gun on the side. Yeah. I... Looked at um, six ways your Mosin the God sniper rifle could be fake. TFB TV has it. It's funny. Yeah, you got to look at like the screws, the mount, and like the cut in the wood. Right. So even if it's the right year, it'd be a bunch of other fake crap. Yeah. All right. So that's it for the primary countries, but I got a couple more left on some of these other little countries here, including these guys that I like to put in with the big boys Austria, Hungary. So I could have sworn I saw an M95 Monlicker short rifle with Budapest 1909 on the side rail. But then I looked up other Budapest ones and it was blank there. Was this a special variant or a different model I was looking at? And this guy mentioned my gun because, oh, no, mine's Stein 1909. But the, uh, the Bulgarian contract guns had, uh, had that yep. date, right? Yep. Bulgarians, only the Bulgarian contracts had that date on the rail, the data manufacturer, which is real cool. I've been seeing some M95 Monlicker short rifles with a front side hood and was wondering if these were originally on all M95 long rifles too, and they are just mostly all missing nowadays, or if it was just on specific models or what. 
I've never seen a sight hunt on an M95. I know. I've seen, I've seen pictures of it. I saw one go on Gunbroker. I don't think anybody knew how rare it was because it only went for like 400 bucks. I think, wasn't it just the Bulgarians that put those on? Well, no long rifles had yeah. it. Yeah, only the ones they converted. Right, so it says that, it doesn't say everyone did it. I couldn't find about Budapest, but uh, Steyr was doing it for a while when they first did the conversions. They cut it down, changed the caliber, got rid of Schritz, and then put on a front side hood that nobody has. Must must have been loose. <laughs> Alright, we're headed off to Turkey. No, Adirondack, I know you've had some deep dives into the Turks. First one here. Why do these Turkish Ankara rifles always look like a lot of different rifles? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, I guess because it is one of different rifles, right? Yeah, so that was... Was that starting in the 20s or was it 30s and 40s? Yeah, it's late. I think the 30s. All during the yeah, right, so 38. Uh, yeah, they started in like 1933 doing stuff. So yeah, they took a lot of stuff. They had 93s. They had those commission rifles and 1905s and then their old mausers their old 1903 mausers and stuff they took and then they what did they, they rearsenal them and remarked them they they changed the caliber to seven well the ones that were seven six five to eight millimeter and uh oh, kind of standardized yeah. all the sights on them too right oh so when you see the cut in the receiver for the longer bullet those are right those are the converted ones yep Always look to see if it has a cut and if it's a small ring, like a ninety. Right. So yeah, they're all different rifles. That's why they look different. <laughs> and the way to tell the eighteen ninety three, but and the nineteen oh three is the the receiver hump where the stripper clip guide is. Eighteen ninety threes are flat, and nineteen oh threes have a little kind of hump to extend the stripper clip guide for more stability. And those are desirable. I think the nineteen oh three was also the first intermediate length action. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Okay, did the Turk? this is related, did the Turks make any new Mausers in the 30s and 40s, or was that all conversions of old rifles? Well, my, mine is new. Yeah, they definitely started cranking them out, I think, 1938. They had, they, they had settled on a pattern, and they were make, making their own. Yeah, mine is 1942 KCAL. I think I have a 45 KCAL. Yeah, so they were once they finished converting all those old things they had, they just started making new ones, and they're pretty solid. Like you could play baseball with it. Oh, I love mine. Mine's <laughs> a tack driver. Yeah, they're they're definitely the underdogs in the Milser Mauser world. Right, Turks don't get the love. All right, let's hop over to Sweden for a quick one here. I saw an M thirty eight Swedish rifle for sale, but it had a straight bolt, not a bent bolt. I thought it was supposed to have a bent bolt. Was there a short rifle version with a straight bolt? And I'm assuming, right, he's probably looking at a 9638. Oh, yeah. That they cut in the 30s. Sweden cut a lot of their 96s down to 24-inch barrels, and those became, they call them M38s, which makes it so confusing in the literature. The collectors call them 9638s because they made new M38s and called those M38s, and they put all the numbers together. One thing to look for, though, if you want to know, Husqvarna made only M38s. They didn't make any of the 96s that got cut, so. All right, short trip over to Finland. Should you only fire standard 7.62 54R Mosin rounds 
in a demarked barrel finish Mosin, or is it the other way around? Uh, these demarked barrels. So the demarked. Are those the ones that are supposed to be like 7.62 by like 53.5? Which. If so they're demarked, they can. Shoot both. Right. It's 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 accurized for the D one sixty six, which is yeah, the heavier can... projectile. But you can shoot both; it should be fine. Yeah, there's no way the finish would make a rifle that couldn't shoot ammo. They would pick up off the ground. But yeah, yeah. it's not the bore diameter; it's the um, chamber dimension. The chamber is just drilled out a little differently. Yeah. So <laughs> the D means it was chambered to fire the the heavier D ammo, and you should be able to shoot them all day long in there. So what is the deal with the duffel cut finished Mosin stocks? Meaning, why are they duffel cut, and what is the rule of thumb I heard about for knowing if the stock is wartime or post-war? If you heard about it, why didn't you listen to it? <laughs> just kidding. Well, that's, just a, that's how the stocks were designed from the fins. They yeah, designed them all that way. So just most duffel strength. cuts were the GIs, right, sending them back. They had to cut them a certain length to fit in the crate or whatever. These duffel cuts have nothing to do with that. Yeah. yeah, these aren't these aren't duffel cuts per se. They're just spliced stocks. And the rule of thumb that I heard was rounded uh, splices is wartime, right? And squared off is post-war. Correct. And there's also and I think the, intermediate would have been like the the v the point. Yeah, like the oh uh, yeah. This was wait, was that's in the war too, though, right? Well, like that's late the, yeah, war, between. late war, post-war, yeah. or is that pre-war? That might be pre-war. I can't remember. I always recommend if anybody wants to know. But I, I always go for rounded. 88. <laughs> yeah, rounded. 88 has a great video on it. So, yeah, rounded is definitely wartime or pre-war. All right, that's it for the country questions. You all did a great job. So that means it's time now for some trivia. So today I whipped up a little game where each question has only two possible answers. You'll have a nice 50-50 shot at getting them right. You'll work together as a team. You're gonna, I, I have faith in you guys. You can just shout out the answers that you know. Or we'll go with a consensus or something. I've got confidence here, so don't let me down. The categories are more or less, earlier or later, and true or false. And the answers are those things. So easy peasy. You ready? All right. Here we go. This is earlier or later. The first Japanese Nambu pistol, the Type A, was completed in 1892. Or was it earlier or later? Well, it definitely was earlier or later. I want to say later. Because the Type 26 was like 1893. Yeah, I want to say it was like 1906, 1909. I think it was 04. 04? Yeah, that might be right. You're all leading in later. Nice and later. Oh, 1902. So, yeah, the Type B, the Baby Nambu, was next in 07. And in 26, they had that Type 14, the cheaper one. But, yeah, later. Very nice. True or false? By the end of all production, the Swiss made more K-11 carbines than they made actual 1911 long rifles. I'm going to say false. I'm going to say true. I think it's true as well. And I'm just saying that because I feel like I never see 1911 long rifles. Ooh. Most of the 11s you see are 96 converted to the 11 pattern. They're normally, yeah, 96 11s. But, yeah, normally I'm seeing more K-11 carbines. Let's see. 
It is true. There are more K11 carbines. Total made, 184,000 versus 130. And that was probably one of the first countries that did that, I would think. All right, we got more or less. Between 1915 and 1917, Winchester, 1895s, chambered in 7.62 by 54 millimeter R, were manufactured for the Air Force and police units of the Russian Empire. And they made approximately 94,000, more or less. So how many in three years or two, three years, these cool Winchesters? I just feel like it's less because you don't see any of them, but that's <laughs> you never see that. Yeah. I know. Yeah, I feel like it's worse. It'd be like 75,000 or something. 60,000. They're leaning less. More. 294,000. Where'd they all go? I guess it's Russia. That makes sense. 70% of all made went there. Uh, They went to Finland and Baltic states, and they just went all around. Oh, well. They gotta be out there somewhere. All right. Earlier or later. The manufacture des arms de cet etienne. Or MAS was a French state-owned weapons manufacturer, famous for all of their great firearms they produced, like Labelle's, Berthier's, and Moss 36s, and was founded in 1864. Or was it earlier? Early, earlier. Yeah, that's earlier. Got some earlier's. Saint Etienne, like yeah, yeah, I was about to say, yeah, 1760s, yeah. A hundred years earlier, by royal decree. So yeah, they were making knives and swords through the Middle Ages, and it was always a weapon-related area. It's pretty cool. All right, true or false? In 1887, the Italian military updated its single-shot model 1870 Vetterly rifles with the Vitali box magazine, holding six rounds. Old. We're going to go with him with the false. It is false. So confidently. <laughs> it is a, <laughs> an odd little four-rounder. Still good. All right, more or less. The first Swiss Vetterly rifles. The model 1867 features an external hammer and a nine-round tubular magazine. Or did it hold more or less? That sh- Ooh, I have the six. More. It's more. Look at that, ha- like that hammer. It, it hits that little spot. It's like 12 or 13 rounds, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think, it's, I, I think it's probably the same 12 as the later, so more. It is. Well, yeah, because oh. I have the 69, the next pattern after that. And and have, how many in that? 12. 12. 12. It looks so cool. Yeah, because yeah, they carried over, they got rid of the hammer, and then they carried over still that dust cover, but after that, they got rid of the dust cover. All right, earlier or later, the Enfield producing Lithgow Small Arms Factory of Australia was founded in 1932. Earlier. Earlier. Ooh, earlier? Yeah, they made Enfield yeah. in World War I. Mm-hmm. I have one. Uh, <laughs> true. Yeah. It is. They were making war weapons. True or false? The first official carbine version of the M1891 Mosin Nagant was the M38. False. False, False, yeah. 1907, 1907, yeah. Yep, 11 inches shorter than 1907, two pounds lighter. Don't see that around. No. Okay, we got some more or less. U.S. firearm author and researcher Bruce Canfield estimates that there were about 88,100 gas trap M1 Garand rifles made. So how many? If I'm not mistaken, it was right around 50 and under. 50,000 and under. All right, you're leaning low? Anyone else leaning low or high? It is less, there is. 48,000, about half of that. 
Yeah, there's not many. You don't. Who has one of these? And ninety percent of them that were have been converted to <laughs> True. regular ones. Earlier or later, the original Walter PP pistol was used by police forces throughout Europe and was released in 1939. Earlier or later? Earlier. Yep, earlier. Yeah, earlier. Got a lot of earlies. Yes, 10 years earlier. All right. We got a true-false. The Monlicker Model 1886 was the first straight pull bolt action of any nation. True. I don't know why any's capital. Oh, we had a confident true. Because he's confident. But yeah, that was a first in a long line of straight pulls. and More or less, the M95 Monlicker Sniper variant was basically a standard M95, but with the telescopic sight mounted slightly to the left so the rifle could be fed by the m clip. And between 1915 and 1918, they made around this many, I put this many, I should have copied it, 60,000 short-barreled sniper rifles. It's got to be less. Got to be less, yeah, because... Let's see. I don't see them. 6,000. <laughs> yeah, they barely made them. All right, earlier or later. Last one here. The more refined lever-type safety designed by Captain Vitali was adopted for the Italian Vetterli to replace its original Claverino safety. Hey, Claverino, which left the pin on the primer and was considered dangerous in this year. We'll let you oh, guys... H- oh, 1894. Is it earlier or later than 1894? Earlier. We have an earlier. I'm going to go with earlier. I'm going to go with the better we got. It is. Right away there, 84. All right. True or false? A recent controversial topic online. Is this true or false? The U.S. Model 1917 rifles were known during production by the staff at the arsenals making them as the P-17, just in the house. Were the workers calling it this? Is there any proof? I think technically, yes. Anyone else? True, false. Yeah, I mean, I think they referenced like one letter or something. But... There was. It was the production. The crew called it that just to differentiate it from the other one. But then people use this to say that was the name, and now there's fights online even today. <laughs> 100 years later. All right, one more here. More or less. Total number of Gewehr 43 semi-auto rifles made by the end of the war. 264,000. More or less. I think more. I think more. Yeah, there's more than slightly above 400,000. Go. Something like that. 100,000. Got some mores. Nice. That's some more. 400,000. All right, that's it for the game. I mean, you guys did great. You got most of them. All right, I have a couple more questions here. Don't go. Don't let one leave. Um, but we're moving away from the countries for these few. I got a couple on ammunition here. Every time someone mentions they use corrosive ammunition, there are tons of comments telling the user to hurry up and clean the gun to prevent damage. So I was wondering, how much time do I really have to clean the bore before damage sets in? Is it hours, days, minutes? And so humid it is. I can... Yeah. No, I'm just that's joking. <laughs> you have to yeah, run a between every shot. Every <laughs> shot. Well, I, mean, I clean no matter what. I always clean my guns. Me too. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty shooting. I will, I will admit I'm pretty bad about it if I'm not shooting corrosive. I have seen a bore rust within a day, though. But that was, I mean, 
but near the the Texas coast where it's like eighty ninety percent humidity. Yeah, if if you don't live in a humid area, you could probably wait like a day, but it's still not. I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, I, I always try to clean them. Like, say I go in the afternoon, I'll try to clean them that night or first thing in the next morning. I don't let them go more than a day or a day and a half. Yeah, twenty four hours is probably all I would chance. Or just take a take a war snake with you with a little bit of solution already on it and just run it through through it at the range. Really? Now, so black powder is a different a little story. water down the no. bore if you absolutely had to. Yeah. Take, take a pee down the bore. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah you gotta use Windex. That's what I would say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, you could get, you can make it home, though, is the point, though, right? You, you could definitely shoot your gun all day and then make it home <laughs> and maybe the next morning do it and, and so I will say on, but I would do it at night. I will say, though, for black powder, when I shoot my muzzle loaders or just other black powder, I will run some uh, wet patches just with water through the barrel um, and then throw a couple dry patches through it right after I'm done shooting before I pack up and go home because then the barrel's still hot and the fouling's, you know, pretty soft. Uh, that way, when it takes, like, five minutes to clean. Yeah, I agree with you 100% on that. That's how I do it when I'm shooting my martinis and my Snyders and all that. I'll I'll clean the bore somewhat good, run some hot water down the bore. That's a great idea. I, 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 a, sometimes I'm too lazy to go, oh, I have the shit over there. I got to take it out. <laughs> Let's pack oh, it out. Black powder is totally different than corrosive ammo, though. Black powder will start corroding immediately. Oh, yeah. Versus corrosive ammo, it, it does take a little while. Yeah. And does the corrosive in the black powders affect other parts of it, just the barrel, or is it the, the chamber area okay, and everything? everything. It, yeah, oh, it tends to get to, to everything because those types of guns, funny. right, flint locks and cap locks, you get lots of fouling that goes everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got uh, several different cap and ball revolvers, and I have to take the um, trigger work apart and everything and clean down in it. Because I mean, just you shoot it just one cylinder, full cylinder, and you have to take the whole lock work apart just to clean it. Yeah, yeah. I've yeah that's, of, uh, that's one of the things that's a little frustrating about it. It's like every time you shoot it, you have to do an entire disassembly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've heard and one if you guy don't that clean them, they will break. I I know from experience. <laughs> I've heard one guy that just whenever he shoot his black powder revolver, whenever he get home, he would take off the grips and just drop the whole thing in a bucket of oil. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I do something real similar to that. Yeah, you, yeah, use ballast on water and just put the whole, whole thing right in there. Hey, yeah, Don, do detergent oh, and a I big old bucket of water. Yep. All right, so we're a bunch of cleaners. So we're not waiting too long to clean the guns. All right, so here's one. I recently watched a bloke with some machine fire treating his brass before reloading and wondering, is that something I should be doing? I just got into reloading. Never seen that before. What exactly does this process do? And we actually have someone on the show that probably was the video you saw. He probably <laughs> did see my Because I watched probably. you do this. He probably <laughs> did. Uh, that is what's called kneeling your brass. Um, what that does is that uh, hardens and softens over time. Um, basically allows you to fire, form the brass to your chamber better. And you get longer brass life out of it. It depends on what you're what, reloading. What brass? The old stuff or... I do it up for everything. I'll do it all the way from I'm shooting my standard two two three out of my AR, all the way to my martinis. All everything. I just it, it 
increases your brass life longer. Um, you're not going to get any split nicks. Just and a lot of times, do you recommend it? Is it that good? You're saying, oh yeah, you guys got to do this. It's if you want to save brass life, like especially if like for for instance, Martini Henry. I'm taking 24 gauge brass holes and turning it into martini when I'm spending almost anywhere from two dollars and fifty cents per piece of brass. So I want to extend that brass life out. So I do, of course, fire form that or I anneal it and fire form it to the chamber. So and then that batch is strictly for that rifle. I do it on a lot of my other stuff like my I even do it like my 6.5 Japs. It's is you it an expensive that. thing to get into, though? The I machine mean, was, I have is like three flames. Literally like a little hand torch. Yeah. yeah, you can take a DeWalt drill, chuck it up in a socket wrench with a <laughs> propane torch and a bucket of water, <laughs> and you're doing the same thing. Uh, for the record, I'm not recommending this uh, procedure. Oh, that's how I started. Yeah. It's, it's the best way so, to do it, to start, until you can save up and buy the machine I have, which is $300. But, All right, so the best way to sell it is uh, how much extra brass use do you get then from your brass? Yeah, I was going to ask that. Depends how much you're going to shoot. Like, for instance, I look at 223. I've done 223, I've gotten without annealing probably 10 to 15 firings before it starts to split. With mm-hmm. annealing, I think we're still testing and we're at 35 reloads with one batch of brass. Wow. And okay. we kneel every fifth. I'm surprised reload. that, like, after that many reloads, you don't have, like, the primer pockets totally loosened up. We've had a couple. We've had a couple that the primer pockets are shot. But other than that, we're, I think, in the mid 30s. Wow. And that's at, after every fifth firing, we re anneal. Wow. Yeah, it just, it just undoes all around. <laughs> it's 15 seconds, is all you're doing, really, in the torch. Yeah, it's I simple, to... easy. I need to get a torch. I don't. I won't do it for anything like two, two, three. Because there's. I mean, no. it's free. We do it. We do it for two, two, three. Because the testing. We always want yeah. to. It's an easy enough to do it on testing, but. but I, I do, do it, it for, for like everything. Six five Dutch because that will will split when you make it out of three o three. Absolutely, that's where you know we were talking about that today earlier. That's where yeah. I would go, especially six five Dutch, uh, veterly, frantic. Yeah. Especially that I would go with that. Anything that you're doing, a, a big conversion because it like work mm-hmm. hardens the brass and makes it less yeah, plastic. So, so I don't actually anneal on mine. Um, I'm at around seven or eight reloads on my brass, and they're starting to to kind of give. You know, I'm kind of losing one or two every time I go out and shoot. Um, but in that case, there's a lot of, of um, because of how large that chamber is, you have to seriously resize the neck. And, and I think that's just stress on it. So, um, but you know, like eight reloads with no annealing. Absolutely. That's well worth that. You can. So I know like I always especially do it because of course I neck size. Like once I get a batch of brass made for that rifle, I neck size. And at that point you don't, you're not reworking the whole brass and you're just having to mess with just that neck and uh, mouth of the case. So it's, it's like the pace can answer this question. If you want to do it, great. If you want to save money on brass, it's something to look into. All right. You can check out his Millsup Duo YouTube channel. He's got a video on there. It's interesting as heck, but looks like it's a, a skill. Got to do a lot of practicing. All right. How dangerous is a revolver? Like, is there a chance of chain detonating other rounds in the cylinder? 
It's like a general question here. Like a black powder revolver? I don't think a, I, it just says revolver. So I'm thinking they heard about the old school revolvers yeah, that would be black powder. Revolver. Yeah, it's black powder. yeah, it can happen. But like modern cartridge revolvers. Nah, it, it's not happening. They fixed that. The but there's still a lot of get... gas exploding out of there now. Yeah, out of the front of the cylinder, yeah. I don't know how, if you don't know how a revolver works and you stick your hand next <laughs> and fire it, then yeah. Yeah, I've seen that. People putting their hands up front. Oops. Okay, last one on the ammo here. Can you explain the difference between a go, no-go, and field gauge and how to properly use? God. I hate that question. So, so which one do you want? If you close on a no go, people still shoot it. But if it's a field, if it closes on a field, field of round, field's a standard round. No, no, the, the go so gauge is a standard is. round. The field gauge is that's the right. Yes, go gauge is around one. That's like the the main test. If you fail that, it's a DQ. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I get this confused. So it's just you put it in. And sometimes you have to take the extractor off, depending on what gun you're using. All right, you just close it. If it closes completely without pressure, because you can force these things if it's bad headspace. Yeah. Right. So if the go closes, it's supposed to close. The no go is not supposed to close. So, but be pretty go close. Go gauge is kind of a waste field. of money because you can just use a, a regular uh, inspect cartridge. Is the same thing as a go gauge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, normally, when I go to a show, I take an OGO oh, gauge, yeah. and that's about all. So I like take. you're chambering a barrel, it, it doesn't even come close. Yeah, I don't think I've ever headspace checked anything ever. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna be honest. I feel like 99 percent of people don't headspace test. Anything. Um, you're supposed to go to a competent gunsmith. Yes, yeah. so those are I think, easy uh, to find. I think well, Ian in the Forgotten Weapons video said something that exactly like that, like. They put that language in there for legalese, but like nobody actually does that. Have you ever priced out a headspace gauge? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, they're not cheap. I've bought, I have all like, three. What, 40, 50 bucks a pop? Well, yeah. The reason why go. I've taken drill O3s and rebarreled them. So that's why I have them. So yeah, that, that's fair. If you're, and... if you're doing projects, that makes sense. But for your, like, your average run of the wheel, Joe Schmo, oh, yeah. you don't really need a headspace. No. Especially if it's, I've seen it with people that have posted like, Hey, I picked up this like matching Yugo K98, and the guy said to check the headspace on it. Like, no, <laughs> you don't need to do that. It's a matching gun. It's basically new. Yeah, best thing to do is check the muzzle gauge. That's your. But if you're around, your chamber right. is probably the same thing. If you're nowhere even close, your chamber is probably still good. You could save your money on the gauges. You just hold your face away from it and shoot it. Exactly. <laughs> right. Just activate safety squints. <laughs> string. All right, I hear the music. So that means it's time for America's second favorite wheel spinning game, the Wheel of Milster. The wheel contains a number of questions and choices for the user to decide on, and we're going to spin it. They're all related to Milster firearms. Today, the categories are, would you rather, this or that, buy or pass, make this trade, should I do it or not, so on and so forth. So I'm spinning the wheel. See where it lands? Landed on this or that. Okay, with this or that, we pretend you just won a radio contest. And let's say the question was, what animal do most people compare the recoil of an M95 to? And you said a mule, and you were correct, and you won. And you have a choice of two 
check Mausers. You just have to pick one, okay? So it's basically see what kind of person you are here. Gun number one is a post-war check K98, all matching, mint condition, winter trigger guard. Now it has no German markings. It's not one of the early ones put together from the already made German. It has a Czech lion on it, so it's all Czech-made late stuff and some leftover pieces, but no German marks. But mint condition, beautiful late 40s, immaculate stock, perfect bore. You're not even sure it's been issued, okay? A one-word description would be beautiful. So that's that. Now, prize number two you could choose is just a D a Do 42 mismatch K98. Just a standard K98. It's a mismatch from the Warrior, though. Bolt doesn't match the receiver, but the bolt matches itself. The receiver matches the stock and all the rest of the parts, but the bolt doesn't match the receiver, the main thing. Now, the bore is okay. Some weak rifling. The crown is worn. Dirty and beat up stock. No major cracks. A few little tiny little chips and dents. It's not refinished. Bluing, I would say, is under 50%. And the markings are all uh, worn, and but they're visible. My one-word description would be, eh. <laughs> so which would you choose? The wartime mismatch or the post-war beauty? Mismatch, definitely. Yeah, definitely mismatch. 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 Wow, no love for the post-war check. Not part of history like before. I was going to say post-war check. So that's right away saying condition and matching and all that stuff does take second fiddle. And even if it's a mismatch, doesn't bother you? Nah. How about it being really beat up? Maybe the boar is barely any rifling. That doesn't bother you? Character. All right. Yeah, I'm just going to feel less bad about shooting it. Most people aren't buying 98Ks because they're accurate. True. All right. Now, let's say, just for the sake of argument, the you can only buy one, and the post-war check is 450 and the other 242 is 1100 Would you spend that much for a mismatch? Tell me. Yeah, I'm going to buy the check. Yeah, yeah I'd probably lean for, that. lean for the cheaper one. They'll shoot the same. <laughs> I'm so they spend- so we found the limit there. It's like, yeah, I want that historical. Oh, it's too much. That's it. Let's go over the other one. Fuck it. Yeah, yeah if I'm going to spend that amount, I'll be on something else. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. So that settles it there. We're all pretty much picking that wartime used mismatch. It's got a lot of character and there's a story there somewhere. Yeah, the other one might have no story at all. All right. We got one more thing here. These are the trilogies we got here. We call one the Will I Ruin It trilogy and the What's the Difference trilogy. So the Will I Ruin It trilogy is, I'll just tell you these three things, and and you say if it ruins the value of the gun. We have if I sharpen my bayonet. Well, I guess that's not a gun. If I sharpen my bayonet, will I ruin it? If I reblue my Royal Tiger M95 rifle, will I ruin it? And if I drill and tap my VZ-24 and put a modern scope on there, will I ruin it? Do any of them ruin it? Yeah. All three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do all three ruin it or not? Three. I think all three do. <laughs> I'd say the least ruining is the M95, just because, I mean, they're probably in his poor condition anyway. Yeah, I mean, but, RTI yeah. probably wire-wheeled them, so it really doesn't That's matter. Yeah, it'd probably go that, the bayonet, then the drill and tap. Well, Drain cap, you, you deserve what you get. Sharpening bayonets, 
I've, I've seen it often. I could see that being part of the history too. You know, the soldiers like, all right, I need something sharp now. But the soldiers yeah. not drilling and tapping. I see some bayonets that I think the Japanese sharpened their bayonets. Like I see some that they're, they're just all like all of them are sharp. But then others, you know, like somebody did this in their poorly lit garage on their angle grinder. Yeah, the Japanese sharpened all their stuff. I've got a I've got a couple bayonets uh, that are sharpened. So would you still ruin it if you sharpened one that was already sharpened? Still might be ruining it. <laughs> that point, mm. how can you tell? Especially if it looks sharpened. You probably won't do it right. Might be too shiny and I don't know. All right. All right. We got the What's the Difference trilogy here. Got three different things here. We got to say what's the difference. Very common things here. What is the difference between an M95, an M95-24, and an M95-M? Well, the uh, M95-M is the 8 millimeter conversion of the M95. And, or, I'm sorry, 8, mil, 8 by 57 conversion. And the M95-24 is just a weird designation they gave, like, the uh, first M95-Ms, right? Yeah, they're the exact same thing. They just changed the stamp, yeah. basically. Right, for the Greece and Bulgaria... Is that the ones? Something like that. And the, so the Yugoslavia put the M. So they're both just conversions of standard M95s. So there's really not much difference besides caliber. Well, right? they, they changed the barrels, and I think it's a different stock. Oh. But it, and sights. Oh, geez. And different magazine. <laughs> All right. It's a completely different gun. Because bayonet lug has got to be different for their bayonet. All right. All right. They are conversions and chains, and they're pretty cool, though. What is the difference between an M48 and an M48A and B and BO and all those ones? I think just, like, the number of stamped parts, because the M48 is, like, all milled, and then there's just more and more stamped parts. It could be <laughs> Yeah. Wrong. No, that's it. They, um, they just kept adding more and more stamped parts, and they just said, all right, put an A there. They added the floor plate and, the, and then finally the bands and everything else. It's supposed to be pretty good. And they're still affordable. I don't mm. have it. All right. We've got one more here. What's the difference? The Walter PP and the Walter PPK. Didn't James Bond have one of these? Uh, Bond have... I actually don't know this one. The PPK is the smaller version of the PP. It wasn't PPK 32 ACP. And then the PP was 380. The PPK is 380. The EP was 32. Oh, so different round and just, but the, I think the internals, yeah, it says basically they're the same in function. The barrel's slightly shorter on the smaller pistol and the grip is shorter. Sometimes the shorter slide and barrel fit on the larger PP frame. So mixed and matched. All right. I think we've done it all here, fellas. I think we did a good job here. We answered our questions. We did our trivia. We spun our wheel. We saw that you guys were wanted the history you weren't looking for your immaculate matching guns i was happy to see that you know some people just want matching beautiful not unissued guns that's not fun so i want to thank you guys for coming on appreciate it oh yeah you may hear thank from these you. guys cool, on the man. podcast though we have other podcasts planned on specific firearms for the future and stuff so we might ask these folks back so good. it's not goodbye forever it's just goodbye for now <laughs> yep thank you all for joining and We'll have more videos and podcasts soon-ish. All right. See you guys later. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Yeah, that was fun.